The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, if you are new with us today, we are in the midst of a study of Romans 12 verses 9 to 21. It is a list, a list of 25 instructions, 25 divinely inspired principles and standards that God holds us to as believers. And we are just slowly working ourselves our way through this and uh, slowly making progress in this long list of expectations that God gives to anyone who calls themselves a believer. And we don't really need to introduce this anymore because we've been here for a little while, so we're going to jump right into it this morning. Let me read, starting in verse 9, Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for anyone to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 25 basic characteristics of the supernatural life. And what Paul is doing here in this section is he is connecting for us the the link between our profession of faith in Christ, our reality in Christ, and what it means to live for Christ. He is drawing the, the dots for us between our justification and our sanctification. He's connecting our positional sanctification and our progressive sanctification. In other words, Paul wants us to understand how the gospel impacts how you live at your work and in your home and with your family and in your neighborhoods and in your schools. It is, as we've entitled this series, Gospel-Shaped Relationships. This section tells us how the gospel is meant to inform our lives and our relationships. We've seen 10 of these already, and we're going to jump right into number 11. So here we go. Number 11 is a prayerful devotion. A prayerful devotion. Look at the end of verse 12. Verse 12, Paul says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. We looked at the first two the last week we were here, rejoicing in hope and persevering in tribulation. And we come this morning, we want to pick up that final phrase in verse 12, devoted to prayer. 
or as the NIV says, faithful in prayer, or as the New King James says, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Paul wants us to understand that the gospel-shaped life possesses an unrelenting commitment to pray, a resoluteness, a tenacity in prayer, a dogged determination in your prayer life, a tireless, resolved persistence when it comes to prayer. Now, all of you here this morning, I'm assuming, pray at some time in your life. Perhaps this last week you've prayed somewhat. I'm sure most of us have. Here's the question I want to ask you, and it's the question that Paul poses to us in this little phrase, devoted to prayer. And the question is this, are you actually devoted to prayer? The issue is not, have you prayed or will you pray? The issue is, are you devoted to prayer? There's a difference between those two. There's a difference between saying, yes, I have prayed as part of my life and being completely tenacious in your prayer life. Now, I'm fully aware of the fact that there are two topics that you can preach on to immediately bring conviction and guilt to people's hearts. And those are evangelism and prayer. And I think most of us will admit that for most of us, our our prayer life is not what we want it to be. I I have not met many Christians who've told me, Todd, I'm just just nailing it in my prayer life. (laughs) Have you ever met anyone like that? Maybe some of you are, and if if you're here, you need to come disciple me. Uh, Because most of us, if we admit it, are not really nailing it in our prayer life. And I'll be the first to admit there's room to grow in my life in this area. And I'm sure there's room for you to grow in your life as well. It's an area all of us can be growing in. Why is it that prayer is one of those practices that we're often tempted to give up? Let's just get it on the table. Why is it? Why is it that so often... Prayer is one of those Christian disciplines that we tend to to just lag in and go lax in and tempted to give up. I was thinking about that this week, and I I came up with a list of five reasons. These are just kind of for free, so you can write these down if you'd like. Five, Five reasons why perhaps in your own life and maybe in my life, I've seen times when I'm tempted to give up on prayer. Here's the first one. Number one, we don't have time, or we think we don't have time. Life gets busy and kids take a lot of work and work is demanding and school is demanding and there's ministry and there's sports and there's all kinds of other activities. And so I think in the back of our mind, many of us just say, you know what, I just don't have time. We might pray over a meal, we might, we might throw up a quick prayer in the car on the way to work, but in general, I think there's times in our life where we just don't think we have time to pray. And I would submit to you that it's not that we don't have time to pray, it's that we don't make time to pray. And the reason I know that is because every one of us find time to do the things that we think are important. Every one of us finds time to engage in the activities that we think we want to do or are important to us to do, and so we always manage to find time to do the things that are interesting or important to us. And so to say that we don't have time or can't find time is really not accurate. It's that we choose not to make time. 
God commands us to be devoted to prayer as He does here, then He must also provide the resources, including the time, to pray. And the reason I know that is because Jesus had to have been the busiest person who's ever lived, particularly for three years of His public ministry where the crowds were mobbing Him. He had to have been the most busy person, particularly in those years, who's ever lived. And yet, as Mark 1.35 says, He got up early to spend time with the Lord in prayer. He was devoted to prayer. I love what Martin Luther says about this. He says, I have so much to do that I'll have to spend the first three hours of my day in prayer. I love that. One of the reasons we don't pray as much as we should is because we don't think we have time. Number two, here's the second reason why I think we're guilty of this. Sometimes it just comes down to laziness. Laziness. Uh, For many of us, if we're just honest, we're apathetic in this area. We're slothful in this area. We're sluggish in this area. We're lethargic when it comes to prayer. We're not as disciplined or as self-controlled or as intentional as we should be. We're not living a trimmed back life. And so, let's face it, sometimes we're just quick to be lazy and explore our comfort worship and enjoy those things that we'd rather engage in than pray because prayer takes work. Prayer takes effort. Prayer takes time. Prayer takes self-discipline and diligence. And let's face it, sometimes we just don't want to do it because we're plain lazy. Number three, a third reason why at times we're not devoted to prayer is because we don't think it's important. We just don't think it's important. We just kind of go through our life, and we're not truly convinced it's critical to our spiritual lives, and we've gotten along fine for a while without praying, and we seem to be doing okay. We get in this pattern of just kind of doing things and going through life, and we get out of the habit of prayer, and things seem to go okay, at least from our perspective, and so we don't think it's important. That's so far from the truth. Prayer is our lifeline. Prayer prayer is what enables us to to engage in our relationship with the Lord. It's fundamental to a gospel-shaped life because prayer is what provides the power of the Christian life. Prayer is what connects the limp wire of our life to the lightning bolt of God's power. It's critically important. It's one of the means the Lord's given us to commune with Him. It's one of the means by which He shapes our character. Listen to R. Kent Hughes explain this. He says, prayer... It's like a time exposure to God. Our souls function like photographic plates, and Christ's shining image is the light. And the more we expose our lives to the white, hot sun of His righteous life, the more His image will be burned into our character. End quote. Do you want the white, hot righteousness of Jesus Christ burned into your character? The way that's going to happen is on your knees. The way that's going to happen is as you engage in your relationship with the Lord in diligent and disciplined prayer, it's critical. And beyond that, prayer is one of the means by which the Lord accomplishes His purposes. Do you understand that one of the means by which God accomplishes His purposes in your life is through prayer? And one of the questions I'm often asked as a pastor is, Todd, how does God's sovereignty and His sovereign control over all things in life intersect with my prayer life? How, How do those work together? Here's my answer. I don't know. I have no idea. 
I don't get that. I've thought and I've sat and I've tried to wrap my mind around how it's possible that God can be absolutely in control of everything. He's already got everything ordained from the beginning to the end, and yet he commands us to pray and he invites us to pray. And somehow, as James 5.16 says, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. How do those go together? No idea. But they're both true. They're critically important. Number four, a fourth reason why sometimes we're not devoted to prayer is discouragement. Discouragement I've found in my own life, as you probably have, and I've even talked to some people recently who've been discouraged and trials and troubles and tribulations come into their life. And the last thing that they want to do sometimes in those times is to pray. We sometimes feel that God has failed us in those moments and we, we want to wallow in our misery. We get down and we tend to just get so focused on ourselves that the very thing that we should be doing is the thing we don't do. Discouragement tends to cloud our vision and we don't do the very thing that we need to be engaged in and that's dangerous. Because look back at verse 12. Do you find it interesting that Paul links rejoicing in hope and persevering in tribulation and devoted to prayer together in one verse? I don't think that's coincidental. I think there's a reason why he brings those together because one of the primary ways that you're going to rejoice in hope is by prayer. And one of the primary ways that you're going to persevere in the troubles and the tribulations of this present life is through prayer. They're connected. Prayer is a sense of the glue that holds our rejoicing and our perseverance together. There's a fifth reason why sometimes I think we're not devoted to prayer, and it's self-confidence. It's self-confidence. I think many of us are guilty of the American way. I got this. How you doing? I got this. We're all susceptible to this. I don't need help. I don't want your assistance. I don't need any help. I'm just going to get through this on my own. I'm just going to plow through this. I got this. Let me just tell you something. You don't got this. You are dependent upon the Lord for everything in your life. You're dependent on the Lord for the breath that you just took. You're dependent dependent on the Lord for that bagel you ate for breakfast this morning. You are dependent on the Lord for whether you woke up this morning. You are dependent on the Lord for the length of your days. And so don't assume for one moment that you've got this. As if you're somehow some independent creature that can just kind of get through life on your own. You don't have it. In fact, I would submit to you that prayer is one of the best barometers of your dependence upon the Lord. Give me a window into your prayer life, and I'll tell you how dependent on the Lord you are. Look into my prayer life, and you can see how dependent on the Lord I really am. Prayer is one of the best indicators of how dependent upon Christ you really are. And we could say it this way, a Christian who's devoted to prayer is a Christian who's dependent upon the Lord. And the opposite is true as well. A a person, a Christian who's not devoted to prayer is a Christian who's not dependent upon the Lord. So your prayer life is a window into your awareness of how dependent on the Lord you really are. Well, those are five reasons I came up with. You could probably come up with many more. Let's, let's just flesh this out a little bit, this phrase, devoted to prayer. 
The word devoted means to continually, steadfastly commit yourself to a thing and give unremitting care to it. To be devoted has the idea of being busily engaged in it or enduring it or persisting in it or to be unwavering in it or to adhere firmly to something. It, it calls for a persistence in prayer. It calls for communion with the Lord in prayer to be a constant and continual part of our lives. Just as breathing is to your physical life, so prayer ought to be to your spiritual life. And so I would ask you this morning, is it? Is your prayer life as important to your spiritual life as breathing is to your physical life? Colossians 4 verse 2, Paul says, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean you walk around every moment of every day engaged in prayer. It doesn't mean that you're constantly bumping into things because you're praying and you're bumping into people because you don't know what else is going on. No, it just means that at the heart level, there is an always an attitude and a willingness to pray periodically throughout your day. Go back to Acts chapter 1. Hold your finger here in Romans 12. Turn back just a, a few chapters to Acts chapter 1. I, I want to show you for just a moment that this attitude of devotion and prayer was consistent with the early church. It was a part of the early church. It defined the early church. That This was such a part of the early church that it dominated their meetings and their relationships and their fellowship with one another. Look back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. Jesus has just ascended back to, to heaven. The disciples are all gathered together in Jerusalem. Verse 12, Acts chapter 1 says, "...and they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet." which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas, the son of James. And these all with one mind were, watch this, continually devoting, same word as in Romans 12, continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. 120 people gathered together. Look at verse 15. That's how many believers there were at this time. How many early, very early, actually pre-church saints there were. 120 gathered together in the city of Jerusalem. And they're marked by prayer. Go over to chapter 2. Look at the end of chapter 2. Look at the, the end of Peter's sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 Peter has preached this marvelous sermon on Pentecost. The church has been birthed. And, and look at the response here in chapter 2, verse 41. It says, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. That, that's a pretty good day of evangelism. 3,000. Now look at verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves, same word, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and... To prayer. You, you want to know what defines the church? You want some of the marks of a healthy, godly, Christ-centered church? There they are. They're committed to the apostles' teaching. They're committed to fellowship. They're committed to the Lord's Supper. And they're committed to prayer. Go to chapter 6. 
chapter 6, verse 1, Acts chapter 6, verse 1, the church is now growing and there's needs that are developing within the church. In fact, there's such a need to distribute food that, that they call together some people to assist them. And so Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So, so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Why? So that we can devote ourselves, same word, to prayer and the ministry of the word. What did the early apostles see as critical to their ministry? What did they say had to be the non-negotiables of their ministry to care for the church? Two things. One, a devotion to the Word of God. And number two, a devotion to prayer. I wonder if that's why the early church exploded the way it did. Many reasons, probably the work of the Holy Spirit and persecution and all of that was going on, the commitment to the teaching. But I just wonder if part of the reason the early church exploded in those early chapters of the book of Acts is because of this. Go over to Luke chapter 11. Go back just a few more chapters to Luke chapter 11. I want to give you what I believe is one of the greatest illustrations of prayer anywhere in the Scriptures. Jesus gives us this perfect illustration of persistence in prayer and commitment to prayer and diligence to prayer. Look, look what he does in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. He says, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Stop right there. Teaching about prayer is critical to a healthy prayer life. In other words, here's the disciples of Jesus, and they need to know something. There's something that they don't fully understand, and so they say, God, Jesus, teach us to pray, which tells us that prayer is not natural. Prayer is not natural. And if you find yourself in a place and it feels unnatural to the pray, welcome to the club. Because the disciples needed some help. So Jesus tells them, verse 2, He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. He teaches them how to pray. The disciples' prayer. And then he illustrates this with the kind of devotion and persistence that ought to characterize this attitude of prayer. Look at verse 5. He says, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Three loaves. Why? Why three loaves? Well, one for the host, one for the guest, and one to put on the table so that it looks like there's plenty of food for everybody. Verse 7, and from inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, I, I can relate to that, especially this week. You get tucked into bed. You know, it's cold out. The last thing you want to do is get out of that warm bed to deal with something. 
Well, what happens? Verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's a friend, yet, watch this, because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. I love that. You can just imagine the guy is banging on the door. He doesn't go away. He just keeps knocking. He keeps knocking. He keeps knocking. He keeps knocking until finally the guy gets out of his bed. That's persistence. Jesus says that's what you need to be like. But in contrast with a man who did not want to be bothered, God welcomes us. You see, it's an illustration from the opposite. This man was bothered by the incessant knocking at his door, but God, he welcomes us. How do you know? Look at verse 9. So I say you to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish, he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Marvelous. God wants you to come. He wants you to be persistent. He wants you to be devoted in prayer Go over to Luke 18 very quickly. Just to show you this one very quickly. Luke chapter 18, here's another illustration, another story that Jesus tells, a parable to show that at all times we ought to be praying. That's exactly what this little story here is about. Luke 18, verse 1, he says, Now he, Jesus, was telling them a parable to show them at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Beloved, that's devotion to prayer right there. What do your prayer life ought to be like? You ought to pray continually at all times and not lose heart. And then he gives us a picture and a story. He says, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me. I will give her legal protection, otherwise by continually coming, she will wear me out. A little humor there, isn't there? That's what devoted prayer looks like, consistent, persistent. And the idea here is this is a good lesson from a bad example. God is not like the unjust judge. He's the good righteous judge who wants you to come and he wants to hear your request and he wants you to bring your pleas to him in prayer. So go back to Romans chapter 12. This is the idea here in this final phrase of verse 12, be devoted to prayer. I ask you this morning, how is your prayer life? How's your prayer life? I'm not asking, do you pray periodically? Do you throw up a quick, hey, Lord, help me. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, are you devoted to prayer? Let me give you some words just as we wrap this one up. Four words that may help kind of flesh this out for us. Here's the first word, regular. Regular. Is your prayer regular? Is it consistent? Not, not just at a mealtime, not just before you go to bed, not just quick uh, saying a word to the Lord as you're rushing out the door in your car. Not that, not just when you're in trials, but is it regular, consistent, a normal part of your life? 
Number two, varied. Varied. Is it varied? Sometimes we can get in the habit of just just always asking, Lord, give me. Lord, I need this. Lord, please help me. Lord, sustain me. Lord, Lord, I need this. Please give me this. And we get in the habit of just bringing our requests. And that's not bad, but beloved, there's a whole lot more to prayer than just asking. There's praise. There's confession. There's thanksgiving. Number three, specific. Regular, varied, specific. Do you pray specifically? I think sometimes, and I'll admit this, sometimes we, we just get in this rut of generalities. God, just please bless me. Amen. That's all you got? If you want God to work specifically in your life, you need to be asking specifically. Bring your specific requests to the Lord. Fourth, spiritual. Regular, varied, specific, spiritual. Here's what I mean by that. So often we pray for someone's health, safety. We, we pray for, for their strength. We pray for someone to get better and someone to have a good surgery. And those, those are all good things to pray for. But how about praying some of the things that Paul prays for in some of his prayers? How about you read Ephesians chapter 1 and the prayer of Paul there, or Colossians chapter 1 where he says, we've asked that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You pray that way? I think sometimes we run out of things to pray because we're not infusing our minds with the things that really matter to be prayed about. So do you have a prayerful devotion? It's part of the gospel-shaped life. Number 12. Here's another one. It's the beginning of verse 13. It's a, a generous disposition. A generous disposition. Look at verse 13. The first phrase he gives us is contributing to the needs of the saints. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Paul is saying here that Christians are generous. Christians care about others and Christians are willing to meet each other's needs or Christians have their spiritual antenna up being listening for and attentive to the, the ways that fellow believers might be in need. And when they are aware of that, verse 13 says, you will be willing to contribute to the needs of the saints. Contributing is the word koinoneo, where we are also familiar with the related word koinonia, which is the word fellowship. It means to share in something. It means to give something. It means to, to give a share of or to join with others in some activity. And it's possible that Paul is talking here ju just about being willing to share in people's needs and share in people's struggles and share in the predicaments of life and enter into their troubles. And I think there's certainly a truth in that. We should be willing to meet every need, whether it's spiritual or emotional or physical 
But almost every time this word is used in Scripture, it almost always refers to financial contributions. Look over in Romans chapter 15, just a couple pages to the right. Romans 15, verse 26. The same word, koinoneo or koinonia, is used here in Romans 15, verse 26 and 27. And Paul is speaking about a financial contribution here. He says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution, same word, for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. There's other places Paul uses this word, Romans uh, 15, we just saw that. Galatians 6, he uses it. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, he uses it. Almost always in reference to financial assistance. And notice what he says. Go back to Romans 12. Romans 12 and verse 13. Contributing to the needs of who? The saints. Contributing to the needs of the saints. That's important for us to talk about this for a moment because I think sometimes... Particularly in our culture, we've got the idea that the church is meant to minister in merciful ways to the world. We've confused this in our culture, and there's an idea today, there's a movement today, the whole social kind of emphasis uh, pressing within the church and encouraging and exhorting the church to be concerned about world poverty and and providing financial assistance to the, the needy of the world. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing some of those things, but listen, we are not called to meet the needs of everyone in the world. We're not. The church is not called to provide welfare to the world. But the church is called to minister to the saints. That's exactly what verse 13 tells us. Contributing who to who? To the needs of the saints. Meaning you as a believer always have your antenna up to the needs of those people sitting around you. And when you find out they're struggling spiritually or physically or emotionally or especially financially, you say, Lord, have you blessed me in such a way that I could be used of you to provide some sort of assistance that's the idea. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world to not be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instructing them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be ready to share and be generous. It's written to the church. Go back to Acts chapter 2. You were just there a moment ago. Let me take you back there just to show you again what the early church was like. Go back to Acts chapter 2. At the end, we were just there. Look at the final verses of Acts chapter 2. What I love about this is to see how the church truly ministers to one another. We just read verse 42, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. Now look at chapter 2, verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might 
have need. Huh. You say, this is communism. It's not communism. It's not socialism. Because they kept all their possessions. They didn't communally give them, but they owned them. They had them. The issue is, though, once they saw a need, they were willing to sell those things in order to meet the needs of those around them. Go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 32, same kind of thing that we see here. The end of chapter 4, verse 32, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. I love that. Verse 32, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. Beloved, do you get that? Whatever you have, Whatever the Lord's blessed you with, whatever possessions you own, whatever portfolio you have, whatever amount of money you have in your 401k or your checking account or your savings account, it's not yours. God has given it to you to be a steward of, and you hold those with an open hand and you say, Lord, use this. It's yours. And if there's someone around me who, who could benefit from this, then, then God, make me aware of it and provide an opportunity so that I can be used of you to meet a need of a fellow brother or sister in Christ. That's what Barnabas did. Look at verse 36. Acts 4, now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I wonder, I wonder if one of the reasons Barnabas is called the son of encouragement is because of this. It's very possible that one of the main reasons he was known as a man of encouragement is because he was always looking for ways to meet the needs of those around him, including selling land to do so. Go back to Acts, uh, Romans chapter 12. Beloved, this, this, this is what the gospel does. This is what happens when, when Christ invades your heart. This is what happens when, when the gospel renovates you from the inside out and, and you begin to reorient your priorities and you begin to see things in a different way and the, the mercy and the grace of God and salvation reaches now down to every area of your life, including your wallet. You want to be used of the Lord to meet needs. You realize that people are more important than stuff. One of the things I love about Maranatha Bible Church is 
I see you doing this. And I love it. And it's such an encouragement. I hear about gift cards being put in mailboxes. I hear about buying things to help other people. And sometimes we receive calls from some of you saying, who's in need? We want to we meet a need. The Benevolence Fund, that, that thing's always supplied and it's constantly used and such a joy. It's for all of us. As an unbeliever, one of the vices of my life was I used to be pretty tight. Um, I liked my money. I didn't have a lot of it as a young person, but I wanted to keep it, and so I was pretty tight-fisted. And God, once He saved me, began to work in my heart. And I began to see that this is a, this is a stewardship. And that God wants us to, to so be generous and liberal with our funds that, that we just need to hold those resources loosely. So one of the things Julie and I did a number of years ago is we set up a, a little mercy fund. And so we just started to put money into a mercy fund and we just started to pray for opportunities to give it away. It's an amazing God always brings those needs to your mind, and He always makes those things known. And, and we have been blessed to be able to give some of those things away. And, and I'll be honest, on the flip side, we've been on the receiving end. Cars break down, and gift cards show up in our mailbox, and huge encouragement. Beloved, this is one of the ways you love the people sitting around you. It's one of the ways that you show the gospel at work in your life. It's one of the ways that you show that Christ has penetrated to every level of your life. When you're willing to hold your resources loosely and give them away to minister to those around you. That's what a gospel-shaped life looks like. Number 13. There's another one. It's the last phrase in verse 13, back in Romans chapter 12. Practicing hospitality. <laughs> Practicing hospitality. Paul is starting to meddle here a little bit. He's starting to get in our kitchens a little bit. I'm fine when you start talking about maybe giving some funds away, but... Wait, wait a minute. Now, now you're talking about my house? Now you're talking about me opening my home to people? Paul, you're, you're crossing the line here. Paul says, believers, those who have been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ will be those who practice hospitality. Philoxenia. From two words, philos, which means to love, and xenos, which refers to a stranger. It's literally the love of strangers. It's the, the love that's being willing to be extended to those that you don't know, the, the love of strangers. So notice in this passage, we are called in the first hand to be those who show Philadelphia, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And we're called here in verse 13 to show 
philoxenia, the love of strangers. Over time, it came to just refer in general to the use of your home to minister to others. And notice what Paul says here. Practicing hospitality. Very strong word. It's not just kind of doing it every once in a while. It's literally pursuing it. Aggressively hunting it, being zealous about it, taking the initiative, going out of your way to welcome believers, being active in your pursuit of actually welcoming people into your home. It's not a passive thing. It's a very active thing that he's exhorting us to do here. And I think there's a sense in which we maybe don't appreciate what this really means because our culture is so independent. We, we just kind of do our own thing and we have hotels and it's all good. And yet you have to go back to the Old Testament and even the New Testament to realize how critical this was to believers. In the New Testament, there were no such things as Motel 6 will leave the light on for you. There was no internet. You couldn't call ahead and make your reservations. You couldn't get on your cell phone. You, you couldn't, there's no Priceline.com where you can kind of figure this all out before you get there. No, it's like you are going somewhere and you're traveling. And if there's no inns, and there weren't many because they just weren't very available, and even the ones that were, were very expensive and filthy and filled with all kinds of immoral behavior. And so if you had to travel somewhere, you are oftentimes, as a believer, at the mercy of other believers in that city. And so you would start your journey, and you would show up, and you'd say, I don't know where we're going to stay tonight, but let's start knocking on some doors. Knock on a door, find out they're believers. Can we stay? Sure, come on in. Let's do this. Joseph and Mary did this very thing, didn't they? Show up in Bethlehem and there's no room for them in the inn. And I've always wondered, what house did they show up at? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to have met those people? Wouldn't you like to know a little bit about the place that they stayed that night? They were welcomed in received into, into their home and made welcome and made to feel like a part of the family. That, that's hospitality. You say, well, Todd, my house is always a mess. All right, figure that out. <laughs> you say, my house is, I'm not getting in trouble for that one. <laughs> my house is too small. So, put them on the floor. In fact, put yourself on the floor and put them in your bedroom. This is one of the ways we love people. It's one of the ways we really love fellow Christians. Leon Morris says, Paul is not advocating a pleasant social exercise among friends, but the use of one's home to help even people we do not know, if that will advance God's cause. That's why hospitality is important. It's not about you. It's not about having it all cleaned up. It's not about having it all perfect. It's not about having a full refrigerator. It's not about having this perfect, beautiful, gorgeous home. It's about the gospel. It's about God's cause. It's about furthering His kingdom and being a blessing to fellow believers. By the way, this is a requirement for elders. You have to be hospitable to be a church leader. 
1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 demand and require that all those who are in church leadership at the elder level must be hospitable. Open homes. Come on over. We're approachable. Be involved in our life. We want you in our home. Welcome here. You're, you're part of this family. You're a fellow brother and sister in Christ. You are loved and welcomed here anytime. But don't, don't just think that this is just for leaders. It's for every one of us. In fact, Hebrews 13 verse 2, you know this well, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Every time I read that verse, I wonder, has that ever happened to us? Happened to Abraham, of course. It happened to Sarah and Abraham back in Genesis 18. It happened a lot in Genesis 19. There are other places this happened. We've had strangers in our home. I don't know. Maybe they're an angel. This is one of the greatest blessings that we will have as being a believer, the joy of rich Christian fellowship in your home with other saints, caring for one another, blessing one another, using your home as a place for ministry. Over the last 25 years, Julie and I have had the privilege of having many people in our home, many of them overnight some from around the world, some who didn't speak English. And she has this little guest book that if you've been over to our house, you've, she's probably made you sign it. And every once in a while, we'll just page back through that thing, and it's getting pretty thick, and we just look back, and all the people who've come through our house in 25 years, pastors and missionaries and people from our church and friends and neighbors, and those are some of our greatest memories. Some of our greatest blessings is to be able to leaf through that and remember all the people who've been a part of our family for a short time. On the flip side, I have traveled quite a bit and been blessed to be able to be in other people's families, houses in Russia and the Ukraine and Kazakhstan and Venezuela and the Canary Islands and Croatia and Malawi. And I wish I could take you to Malawi. And I wish I could introduce you to Jim and Bethany. And I wish you could meet them. Because two weeks out of every month, they've got instructors living in their home. And they welcome us in, and we're a part of their family and their, their, their kids, and we eat dinners together. And, and it's one of the greatest joys of me going to Malawi as we teach in the Central African Preaching Academy. It's the privilege of being with them and being in their home and being a part of their family and that's as much a blessing to me as it is teaching those men theology and how to preach. Are you willing to do that? It takes you getting outside of yourself a little bit. It takes you being willing to be inconvenienced a little bit. Maybe that's why an Italian proverb says a guest is like a fish and after three days they stink. That's why another proverb says, treat your guest as a guest for two days, and on the third day, give him a hoe, meaning make him work. 
Maybe that's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Why does he have to add that? Why does he have to add that little extra phrase at the end without complaint? Because you know exactly what this is like. You get the phone call. Hey, we're passing through town. We'd really love to stay with you and we'd love to spend some time with you. And we're just wondering if we could drop in and spend a night. And you go, oh, not this week. My house is trashed. The kids have written on the walls. They destroyed an entire bedroom. We got nothing in the, in the fridge. My calendar's maxed out. Yeah, we'd love to have you. Right? That's the attitude of a believer that we say, absolutely, we are willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. So how do you see your home? Paul's really stepping on our toes here. How do you see your home? Is it your castle and the place that you get to just kind of hunker down and the place that no one else gets to be a part of? Or do you see your home as a place of ministry? It's a place where you get to open up, no matter how big or small it is, no matter if it's a house or apartment, no matter if it's clean or not. You say, no, my place of residence is a place that I want to be used of the Lord, and you open your home to people consistently. That's what the gospel does. The gospel makes you love fellow believers to the point that you're willing to say, come on over. Come on over. I was reading an article this week called The Lost Art of Hospitality. And it was about one of the blessings or the many blessings that come from being hospitable. And the article ended with some practical steps. And let me just share some of these with you. Particularly for those that may be disinclined to uh, practicing hospitality. First, start by having family meals around the table. It's a good place to start. If you're not accustomed to that, then... Have your meals together as a family. Then secondly, have someone over from your church who you like. Just you know, start small. Don't, don't put yourself out there too much. Just start with someone you like. Then have someone over from your church whom you don't know. Fourth, then have someone over from your church who you don't really like. And then walk over to your neighbor's house. Fifth. And ask them to come over for dinner. Are you doing this? Many of you are. I see it after church. I love it. Let's excel still more in this area. Put something in the oven, oven Sunday morning and come to church and start asking, can you come over? And keep asking until someone says yes. Take someone out for lunch. How about, how about finding someone who's new, who's trying to, to find a new church home and trying to integrate into a church family, and, and you need to remember how difficult that is. That is not easy to do. It is a challenge. Anytime you move from a place of comfort and a place you're familiar with and you move to a new church and you begin new relationships, that is hard, and we forget what that's like when we've been in a church for a while and so put yourself in their shoes. Track them down. Find them. Say, hey, what are you doing today? Let's go grab some lunch. Hey, why don't you come over on Wednesday? 
Well, that's 13. We're halfway. Let's pray. God, we need these very practical instructions. Lord, sometimes our our lives get full of ourselves. And we get so consumed with our struggles and our trials and our difficulties that we don't pray. And then we lose sight of others' needs around us. We're not hospitable because we just want to isolate ourselves. And the gospel has a way of reorienting those priorities. Christ teaches us to look outside of ourselves. Christ teaches us to come to you in prayer. And, and Christ teaches us to make sure that our homes are an open, welcoming place for others so that we can serve them and minister the gospel to them and serve them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. So God, drive these principles deep into our heart. Let us not just walk away thinking, man, someone should have heard that today. Lord, let us practice these things. And let us be able to be those who live a gospel-shaped life for your honor and glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.